How's everyone doing? All right. If you got your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. As we continue in our new series of Philippians, we will be here for the next few months, so buckle up, settle in, grab some popcorn, and then let's get to work, too. If you were not here last week and you missed Pastor Jared's message, my encouragement to you is to go home and Bible chapter 16 and to read how the church at Philippi began. Uh, we, we see that God spoke uh, the word through Paul and opened up a woman by the name of Lydia's mind and God began to work amongst the people in a really amazing way. And so by the time we come to this letter, we get to about 10 or 12 years down the road. And by this time, God is not just doing something amongst them extraordinary, but he has solidified the beautiful apostle Paul and this church. And he is overwhelmed by them. And we'll see in this text that he's really overwhelmed by God's work in them. In a couple of months, when we get to chapter 4, we'll see that Paul describes this church as his joy and crown. What a, what a way to describe a people. We'll see that he loves them deeply. This letter is a thank you, and we'll get into the context of that thank you in a moment. But as we get into verse 3, we're going to be in verses 3 through 11 today. Let's listen in on what Paul is going to teach us through his word. And let's, let's anchor in and see what God has for us. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, Paul says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, to anchor ourselves in the text today and to build a framework for this morning and where we're going every morning after this while we're in the book of Philippians, we must know that Paul's joy is rooted in Christ Jesus alone. That is a theme in this text. We see both in this chapter, the second chapter, the third chapter, fourth chapter, Paul is rejoicing in the Lord. His joy is in the Lord, despite being tied up in a prison cell, more than likely probably in Rome. 
yet he is still finding joy in the midst of this. And for us to get the weight of what's going on in this text, that's an important note to know he's writing from prison, and yet he still has joy. That's the main gaze that Paul has in this letter. He has a secondary gaze, and that secondary gaze is this, the people known as the church at Philippi. He is deeply concerned with how the spiritual development of the church at Philippi is going. And so not only is he thankful to God that God is working in the Philippians, but he is still some 800 miles away hoping and praying that God would continue to work in this people. Really, the one person that Paul is not considering in any of this is Paul himself. Now, Paul does have hopes and desires. He even says later in the letter that he hopes to be released from prison and so join them in the gospel ministry. But his hope is not tied to the release of prison. His hope, his gaze is in Christ and these people. And perhaps a pretty important question for us to ask before we get going this morning is, oh, how often our self-centeredness robs us of actual joy. And ask yourself, are you joyful? And see where that stealing of joy is coming from because more than likely, it's coming from an inward focus of which Paul is writing against. He even identifies himself in the first verse as a slave, one whose life does not belong to him. It belongs to Christ and it belongs to the church. This is the same question that we are to ask ourselves as we get into this text. Now, we're gonna go into deeper questions, okay? And we're all going to fit in one of these two categories. So if you are a Christian, I hope this question steers you and navigates you through this passage as you consider what God is saying through Paul in it. If you are a Christian, here is my question for you today. When it comes to Christ and your church family, are you rejoicing over and praying for the same things that Paul is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna state that again. When it comes to Christ and your church family, are you rejoicing over and praying for the same things that Paul is? Being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we would do well to pay attention exactly to what is going on in this text by way of what Paul is saying. If you are not a Christian, let me extend a warm invitation to you, or you're not sure if you're a Christian. We're so glad that you're here. My question for you is a little different. Will you notice the joy that Paul has as he res resides in prison for a people and ask yourself, how can this be? His hope is not set in the release of prison. His hope is set in the Lord. And ask yourself, how can this be? That might be able to penetrate a little bit of what God wants to do in your heart this morning. So in this text, we see verses 3 through 11, kind of two main responses that Paul is giving, both anchored in God himself. 
the first response is in verses three through eight, and it's a response of rejoicing. Paul is rejoicing in the Lord for the Philippians. And inside that one response, there are kind of two pillars that are navigating that kind of tone of rejoicing. The first one is Paul's thankfulness to God for these people. And the second pillar is God's confidence that the work that God started in the Philippians is going to be completed. So he's got a confidence and a gratitude to God. And this has spilled over into this amazing rejoicing in the language of this text. And it's meant to serve as an encouragement to us as the church as we consider Paul's affection for these people. The second response that I want us to see, and it's the main response of application for us today. In fact, that's where our main point is going to be. I'm not going to give it to you at the beginning like I typically would. We'll wait until we get there. But the second response is this. It's one of prayer. This joy that God is doing something in the Philippians has spilled over into continual prayer for these people to grow and bear fruit in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll see a little bit later on, it is immediate application for the church anywhere. And that is our hope today. So first, the first response is this. If you're taking notes, rejoice. There is a tone of rejoicing. And particularly in these first five verses, I want us simply to observe Paul's relationship with these people and ask ourselves some important questions Write these down. Consider these things. These observations are simply wrapped up in this way. He was thankful and confident in God's work. He was thankful and confident in God's work. So the first pillar of that first response is this, Paul is thankful. Look with me in verses three and four. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my joy, or making my prayer with joy. Paul is so thankful for this church. He thanks God for this church. Notice who he thanks. He thanks the Lord. He doesn't necessarily thank the church for the way that the church has loved him and served him. He thanks God for the church. Paul, often in his letters, if you're a student of the word, you'll notice that he thanks God for people. And not often does he thank God for things. Have you often thanked God for the people to your right and to your left known as the church at First Irving? It's a fair question. We're going to get into a little bit of why Paul is thanking them, but the question still is in front of us. Are you thankful for the people that God has allowed you to be knitted with in Community. Now, Paul knew these people well. The context of the letter is simply this. A man by the name of Epaphroditus, assuming that Paul is in Rome, some scholars debate that, but assuming he's in Rome, was sent by the church at Philippi some 800 miles to Rome to extend a greeting from the Philippians, and he bore gifts that would be of encouragement to Paul. We'll see this later on in the letter in in, uh, chapters 2 and then again in chapters 4. The context is that Paul is thanking God for these people who have just done something very, very nice for him. And he's overwhelmed by 
the gratitude. Now, this was a difficult journey for Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus actually almost died, but he stayed with Paul. He was restored, and then when he was ready to travel back to Philippi, Paul pins this letter, and he sends it back with Epaphroditus to be of encouragement to this church. And notice, again, that he thinks God for them. This is the church that has partnered with Paul in so many different ways throughout the past decade. He, they have partnered with Paul at, uh, as he's in prison in Rome. They've partnered with Paul when he was in prison in Thessalonica. This is the church that Paul asked would support the poor church in Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and who gave these Macedonians, which are Philippians, they gave out of their own poverty because they knew that the only treasure in the world was Christ himself. These people had a deep, rich understanding of the gospel, and Paul was so thankful for them in the way that they had ministered to the church and the way that they had ministered to Paul specifically. And so, Paul is overjoyed to God for them. Now, this is still a broken church, and we're going to kind of travel through their brokenness over the next few weeks. But before he gets into their brokenness, he thanks God for them. We're broken too. Are we first thanking God for one another rather than wishing we were handling certain things differently? It's a fair question from the text. One we ought to ask ourselves, but here's the question that the text asks. Verse five, why did he thank God? Why did he thank God for them? Well, we got into some of it in that they cared for him greatly, but look, he gives us an answer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Pastor Jared preached on partnership last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon as a compliment to this sermon. That word partnership means koinonia. Uh, it, it's deeper than the fellowship that resides in many of our minds in the English language where we just get to know one another and know about one another. It has a much deeper meaning than that. It's a partnership. It's a covenant. It's a participation in something. The Philippians had partnered with Paul in a very specific and deep way. They shared in something. The meaning of that means they shared together in a treasure. They surrounded themselves under something extraordinary, and they let their fellowship be based on that. That's the only reason that a Jewish theologian and apostle has any sort of relative relationship with a people who are from a Roman colony, who, who worshiped false gods prior to meeting Paul, the fellowship was found in Christ, in Christ alone. And this was unbreakable. And he says, from the first day until now. So that day that the gospel was given to Lydia, all the way to when this letter was penned and received, Paul had observed this partnership. He was a beneficiary of this partnership. And he was thankful that they partnered with him in the gospel. This unity is extraordinary, and you cannot find it anywhere in the world. It is only in this gospel, and that is why Paul thanks God. Here's the crazy thing. Look to your right and to your left real quick, all right? You see those people next to you? Awesome. 
You, we, us have the same treasure that binds us together in koinonia, in fellowship. We have the same thing that Paul had with these Philippians. And he was so thankful for the way that they had partnered with him. They shared in this treasure. Church, are you thankful for one another? That's a fair question. Are you thankful for one another? Are you thankful for what Paul is thankful for? Gospel partnership, fellowship, koinonia. It means far more than we give it credit for in the English language. Uh, It's more than just a hall. It's more than just a fellowship hall. We are in this together every second of every day for the glory of God. What a blessing. And if you're, if you're not a part of the koinonia, the fellowship of the gospel, we're gonna extend an invitation for you later on for you to come and be a part of it because it is glorious. Something that even jail cannot steal from you. Something that jail cannot even steal from you. And notice who he's thanking God for. He is thanking God for all of them. Not just the overseers, not just the people who have been here for 30 years, every single person in the church I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And we're going to get into, in verses 9 through 11, what that prayer looked like. But he's praying for them. He's thankful for all of them. We continue our learning uh, of Paul and and observing him in verses 6. There's something else that Paul wants to teach us. It's this, and I'm sure of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Focus with me on verse 6. This is essential for our text. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That preposition in is pretty important. It's not by way of or through. It is a work specifically that God is doing in them to change their mind, to change their heart. And the fruit of that has been a koinonia, a partnership with Paul in the gospel. And he is thankful to God for it. In fact, he knows with certainty, one cannot make such a statement unless he is certain that what God has began in him will be brought to completion. He is basing it on two things. He's basing it on 10 years of observation in the Philippians' life, recognizing that the fruit that is bearing within them can only be from God because it's certainly not from man. And then he knows mostly and primarily that the character of God starts something because God in his nature is creator. And when God creates new life, something new, he brings that life to creation or to finality. So he's basing it on the character of God and he's basing it on the fruit that he's seen in these Philippians' lives. And he is certain, therefore, to make a clear statement of, I know I've seen it. I've observed what God is doing in you. Only my God could do this work. And this work has been so beneficial, so good, so glorious that only he will bring it to completion. Take your hands off of it. It belongs to the Lord 
and he is going to do that work. He knows certainty. My question, as we kind of take a pause in the sermon for a moment, is this, are you certain that God has begun a good work in you? Have you seen fruit in your life? Have your fellowship around you been able to observe fruit in your life? Maybe you're asking this morning, I don't know. How do I know? Or I don't know what that looks like. Well, here it is. When God begins to change your mind and your heart, he begins to change it towards the things that he thinks about, towards the things that he has affection for, towards the things that he loves. He allows us to start seeing our sin the way that he sees it. He, he, he allows us to see the hope that's only in Christ, who he gave to us. A little later on, we're gonna have an opportunity to come down, and if you don't know, come and talk to us. We will not leave this building until you are clear of what the gospel message is. He who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion. In verse seven, Paul shows us some specific fruit of how he knows that God is at work with him. He's not just thankful to God for the work that, for the partnership in the gospel. He now, in verse seven, goes into exactly what he has confidence in. Look with me in verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, meaning it is right for me to say that God's gonna complete this work because I hold you in my heart for you all are partakers of grace with me. For you all are partakers of grace with me. Partakers, again, is that same word in the Greek as koinonia. It's that fellowship. You have joined with me in the grace of God and we have joined that in our lives together and we are constantly thinking of Christ in one another and we have put the self to death. That is koinonia. That's, that's joining together to be partakers of the gospel. But look at the two ways in which this is bearing fruit. Both, Paul says, in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The first being this, Paul was in prison, and they partnered with him while he was in prison. It is not a, part, it is not a popular thing uh, under Roman rule to say that you are partnering with someone in prison who's in prison for the gospel because he has said that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. It is, it is unique to partner with someone in such a way but Paul has recognized that this partnership in the gospel is demonstrated in how they have committed to him in prison, something they could lose their life for. So the, the belief that they have, the work that God has started in their heart is playing out as they have partnered with him in prison. They are not ashamed of the gospel. Caesar is not their God. Caesar was their God the day before Paul met Lydia. And he brings this 10 years down the road and they have mature elders. They have mature deacons who are serving the church. They're making disciples. They're, they're giving to the church as generous as any church in scripture is recorded. And God is at work in them. And now they're, Paul's saying, you have partnered with me even my imprisonment. And this is fruit. Secondly, it's this. They have shared in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Through their love of Paul, their support of his ministry, nothing has stood in the way of this partnership, like nothing. 
and it could cost them everything. Yet they are sharing in the defense and the confirmation of this glorious gospel. And because they had done these things, Paul knows that the work is in process and it will be completed. And that's why he can make such a bold and amazing statement. This evidence that God is working in them. Now, I do want us to know before we get really to the kind of the, the meat of our application, notice that Paul's affection is certainly for the Philippians, but it is rooted in God. Paul's uh, affection is for the Philippians, but it is rooted in God's work. That's why he thanks God for the Philippians, and that's why I said God's the one who's going to bring about this work in you. Paul's hope is set in God himself and not as to whether or not the Philippians have the skills and obedience to fulfill what they are supposed to fill in their gospel work. His affection for them is rooted in God, and we see this in verse 8. For God is my witness, Paul says, his principal witness in, say, in, in making such a strong statement is in God himself. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That might seem odd to us in today's world, that a, a man could yearn to be with a people that he's 800 miles from, that might not sit in any of the categories that we have, but it is overflowing from him to the point where he says, you can ask the Father, I have no other words to put it into articulation, that I yearn for you with the affections of Christ. Now, affections in the Greek means like from my gut, in my inner beings. I, I don't know how else to say it is what he's saying. I love you, and I yearn to be with you with the affections of Christ. So church, living 2,000 years after the resurrection, we get to see through Paul specifically what Christ's thoughts are for the church and what Christ's affections are for the church. We know that Christ dies for the church, right? But if Paul is yearning with the affections of Christ for the church, that means that he is yearning uh, the same way that Christ yearns for us, the church. He longs to be with us, to be a part of that fellowship, that gospel fellowship with us, centered on himself. This is the nature and the character of our God. What a comforting thing. This is a selfless affection. Paul's not really thinking about himself. So, a couple of questions before we get into our main application. Are you confident that God's going to do the work in you? Have you seen fruit there? Go ask a friend. Here's an application. Go and ask a friend, what is fruit that you see in my life that can only be credited to God? That's a fair question. Go ask your spouse that. That might be a real scary thing for some of us, right? <laughs> hey, hey, honey, where do you see God at work? And it's like, pause. Go and ask. Ask for us to know, to evaluate ourselves. Have we considered the character of God lately and the way that he starts things and the way that he begins things? This last question for this section, are we partakers in this glorious gospel? Are we partaking in this same 
gospel? Are we finding fellowship in this gospel? Because I, I want us to notice that Paul has affection for these people because they have been partakers of this same gospel. If they are not walking together and joining together and knowing one another, there is no affection that's going to be moved from the heart. Do you have affection for people? If not, ask yourself, am I an actual, true, genuine, biblical fellowship? And if you're having trouble connecting, come and talk to us. We'll talk. We'll, we'll set you up with fellowship. It's more than just having kids that go to the same school. It's more than just living in the same neighborhood. Are you striving together in the things of God? That's where fellowship is found. So ask yourself, are you partaking in the gospel? And is that partaking spilling over into affection for one another? You know, we, are, we say often we want to grow in Christ. Uh, that's, that's good. We also want to aim what that means. Growing in Christ means to grow in the affections of Christ. Christ's affections are for the church, just as Paul is demonstrating here. Are your affections for the church growing? Are you getting to know one another in koinonia and in fellowship? Ask yourself these things. If you are, continue on. We're going to get into application. If you're not, ask the Lord for grace and mercy to do so. So we're going to move into response two, and this is really going to be the main application for us today, and that's really kind of the, like the main little point I want us to see after we've just observed verses three through eight. So notice how this great rejoicing and affection spills out into specific prayer. Paul prays for the work to be completed in these specific ways, which is verses 9 through 3. We'll get to those in a second. But this is Paul's response. He is thankful to God for this work. He's confident that God's going to bring this to completion. The affection of God is within him. He knows that it's going to happen. And then it spills over into these beautiful prayers. And in this text, verses 9 through 3, there is not a better prayer in the scriptures that a pastor could pray for his people. There is not a better prayer in the scriptures that you could pray for one another. I want to challenge us to pray the way that Paul is praying for his people. This is a glorious thing, and I'm going to read it for us now. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as I've been in the text this week and just studying what God has to say, to be honest with you, the Philippians are kind of intimidating, they gave out of their poverty to people who had nothing, and they had nothing because they recognized that Christ is better. These people sent a messenger 800 miles just so Paul knew that they were still in Christ. They had issues in the church to be addressed for sure, but they cared about Paul. The work of God was on display in their life. And it's interesting that Paul, he doesn't say, hey, great job, keep it up. His prayer is that they would grow more and more in love. He doesn't want them to be satisfied. 
He wants them to grow into the image of God. And that's why he says, because of all this affection and this rejoicing that I have, because of God's work in you, I'm going to continue to pray these things, and I believe he's going to bring them to completion. If a mother has a sick child, uh, and the child is not doing well, it is very natural for a mother who has all this affection for a child to cry out to God to save and heal her child. It's very natural because there's affection there. There's great partnership there. Perhaps we don't pray for one another because we don't know one another. Perhaps we're not praying because the affection is absent. Not here in this text. This is showing us how we ought to pray, and it is only possible by God's grace and true, genuine care for one another. Now, just remember, that doesn't mean we're always going to like one another or be like one another or always agree with one another. And this is a Jewish scholar who has a partnership with Roman citizens under the banner of Christ. So if Paul can do that, and the sentence of uh, that, that the Philippians are willing to face is death in being a Christian, then we aren't losing much by making sure that we are set in these same communal rhythms as Paul was. Now, in verse 9, we see Paul's prayer begin. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He wants them to keep abounding in love. And we know that the love of Christ's kingdom or the law of Christ's kingdom is love. Love is at the very center of the cross. It's a love that is sacrificial, that thinks of God and thinks of others. That is the very center of love at the cross. And he's saying, you have proven your love to me. You've not cared for yourself. You have cared for me and you have cared for the things of God. This is biblical love, and I want you to grow in it more and more. And he gives two things that feed this type of love. It's growing in knowledge, and it's growing in all discernment. It's growing in the knowledge of Christ. This is why we want to know Christ. We want to know the things of God. We want to know his kingdom, his plan. We want to know what he thinks about sin. We want to know how his spirit works. We want to know what the plan is for his church. We want to know these things that we may grow in what is godly and good so that may, we may abound more and more in love. Now, we don't want to grow in knowledge for knowledge's sake because we know that type of knowledge, Paul says elsewhere, puffs up and is conceited. But we want to grow in this knowledge and therefore have a knowledge that is activated by faith and obedience growing in love. And then secondly, he wants us to grow and feed off of all discernment. We want to know, we need to know what is good and what is not. He wants us to know all discernment. That is something that is lacking in the church today, all discernment. We need to know what is good according to the word of God, and we need to know what is bad according to the, the word of God. And we need to define love the way that God defines love in the scripture and not the way that the world defines love because here's the reality. Non-discriminatory love is not love. I'll say it again. Non-discriminatory love is not love. Tolerance is not love. Giving someone what they want and not what they need is not love. 
And Paul wants us to grow in this. If a mother gives her child everything that that child wants and its natural desires and does not discipline the child and does not lead the child away from danger and considers what she is doing love because her child is happy, one, the mother is not acting in love and two, the child is not happy. But two, compare that to a mother who knows the love of God lays down her life for a child, steers the child away from danger, teaches the child the truths of the scriptures, and leads that child towards God in all that they do. Is it discriminatory? Yes, because you're telling someone no to certain things that they don't realize is, is harmful for them. But this is the type of love that Paul wants them to grow in. It's a biblical love. It's a perceptive love. We are to grow in what this type of love is in the church. We are to pray that one another grows in this. So here's what I want you to do. Pray for your wife to grow in this love. Pray, wife, for your husband to grow in this love. Pray that your children would know the gospel and then grow in love. Pray that we as a church known as First Irving would grow in this type of love. Because if Paul's saying it to this church, he's saying it to our church. And this is a beautiful thing for us to consider as the people of God. Why is this growth in love? Of important. Well, Paul actually gives us an answer in verse 10. Look with me there. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, so that you are able to approve what is excellent. We do have the answers to what is good and true in life based on the word of God. Let me say it a different way. How do we know what is excellent? Well, we need to ask ourselves, what is of great value to God? What is excellent according to his word? Because we see in verse 10, its end is this. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So pure means this. We want to be people who um, have no hidden motives, who are increasing in our purity, who are who we say we are. We want to be authentic, but we want to do so with the aim of Christ in mind and not just being authentic. We want to be blameless. Does that mean we want to be perfect? We're not going to be perfect, but we want to strive for these things because they find their end in the day of Christ. So all of this is driven towards the day of Christ. Everything must be tested through the paradigm of whether it will be valuable on the day of Christ. How do we, so that we may discern or so that we might be able to approve what is excellent and so have it approved on the day of Christ, we must test through this paradigm what is valuable at the day of Christ. Question is this, is this excellent according to God's word? Is this whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm thinking about, whatever my plans are after college or whatever my uh, philosophy is in raising my children, is it valuable on the day of Christ? And you can take anything and filter it through this paradigm and get to what Paul is talking about in this text. Let's take sex, for example. Is that okay? Okay. Just real quiet and I felt real alone, but you're with me. All right? 
Sex is gratifying. It is a gift from God to his people to procreate and then also to actually to display the gospel one to another in its proper form. If I'm going to test whether or not the way I view sex is valuable on the day of Christ, let's filter it through two ways we can view sex. Sex outside of marriage or with another covenant partner is not valued in the word of God. In fact, there's a strong warning against it. The world says, yes, but what I want today is what I want, and there's no implications based on what I want. God's word says something other. We know that when people have sex outside of the design of God's covenant, that it leads to all sorts of brokenness. Now, by God's grace, we have grace that can restore those things, of course. But when we get to the day of Christ, if we view sex the way that the world does and not the way that God does, not able to approve what is excellent, then that will be a different type of day. That will be something that we missed according to the scripture. Now, if we view it the way that God views it, something beautiful and something sweet between a husband and a wife the way that God designed it, and we recognize that everything we put our hands on is meant for the glory of God alone. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever it is you do, do it all for the glory of God, and sex is one of those things. So we want to ask ourselves this, are we able to approve what is excellent before we stand before Jesus on that day? He wants us to grow in love, in all knowledge of Christ, in all wisdom and discernment, so that we are able to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's prayer is for the church. Church, you're killing it. I want you to continue to grow in these things. I want you to continue to, to test every thought that you have, to test it against the scriptures, to see if its end is found in the glory of Christ or if it's found in your end. That's the difference between the church and the world. Verse 11, we know that it's filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is not our own fruit. This is not our own righteousness. This comes only through Jesus Christ. All of the fruit that is to be born as to whether or not we're testing what is excellent, uh, uh, the way that we love, the knowledge that we have, the way that we spend our money, the way that we sacrifice our lives, the decisions that we make uh, for our families, we test those things and it's filled, if Christ, the day of Christ is the end goal, it's filled then with the fruit of righteousness that only belongs to Jesus. And don't miss this, the last phrase of the section, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. I want you to grow in love more and more with all knowledge and wisdom so that you are able to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that is Jesus Christ, to the praise and glory of God. If all of that fruit doesn't find its end in the praise and glory of God, then we need to check our motivations. The end of everything we do as the church ought to find its end in the praise and glory 
of God. So let's just take a step back from the text and think about this. Paul thanks God for the work that he is doing in the Philippians. He is confident that God is going to do this work within them. Uh, he is showing his affection for the Philippians in this way, and then he's praying to God that they would continue to grow more and more before they stand before Jesus to the praise of God's name. So he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it to the praise of his own name. There's nothing to do with us. It's the mercy and it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to his church. And it bears this beautiful fruit that we can feast off of. We can enjoy together. We can spur one another on to abound in love more and more. Can't find it anywhere else than here in the church. Here before the Lord Church, are you praying for one another like this? Pastors, those who are aspiring to the office, are we praying for the church like this? We should write it down. Memorize verses 9 through 11 and pray it at your dinner table with your family. Pray it in your ABF classes. Pray it everywhere you can for the glory and praise of his name, pray it. This will reveal our motivations and our actions if it's not to the praise of his name. So test him. Hey, see if you're in the faith. This is Paul's last you know, statement to the Corinthians in second letter. Test to see if you're in the faith. If you, if you don't know Jesus... If you don't know the God who started the work and is faithful to complete the work for the praise of his name, I'm hoping today that the word of God has penetrated your mind and your heart just a smidge to make you think differently about the gospel and the hope that you have only in Christ. In a few minutes, we're gonna have pastors down here. Please come and talk to us. Please come and talk to us. If you are in Christ and a part of the church, ask yourself these things, test these things. Do you rejoice the same way that Paul rejoices? Are you asking the same questions that Paul was asking? Is that affection for one another spilling over into prayer? Because really that prayer is really for gospel living, not just prayer, but that the church would be operating inside of this fruit. As Kurt and the worship team comes up, I'm grateful for Kurt because he looks at the text and he, he talks with us and he kind of connects for us a great way we can respond based on what the text says. And I took a section of the song we're about to sing and it's true. And I hope we sing it like it's true. We sing it like it's something that we actually believe, but here's just a stanza of the song. Who is like our God? Strong to save, faithful in love, my debt is paid and the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. Bow your heads as we go to the Lord in response.
There's several ways to respond today. If you don't know Christ, please come and talk to a pastor down here. If you do know Christ, maybe there's some areas of repentance that need to be considered in this time of response. Perhaps you've been unfaithful in getting to know one another in a gospel-centered way. We're not praying for one another. We're not loving one another. We're not caring for one another. For those who have been faithful, remember that Paul says, I want your love to abound more and more. We will not be done until we see the face of Christ. And in the, t- in the meantime, we are to approve what is excellent according to his word. Ask yourself, do I operate according to what is excellent in the word of God? This is our hope. This is the broken world that we live in. This is the hope. You can know God like this and abound more and more. Father, we come before you. And we ask, God, that you would do a work in us, Lord. We praise you for fruit that is bearing here. But, Father, would you allow us to grow more and more in love through all knowledge of Christ, through all discernment, so that we're able to approve what is excellent, God. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with all the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of your name. Father, would you hear our prayer today? Would you forgive us for the ways that we have not? And Father, we just, we praise you for the work that you've done and we believe that you're gonna be faithful to complete it. Father, we pray this in the mighty and powerful name only to save Jesus Christ, amen.